Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. Tara. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. I am actually at home by myself this week. And I don't Ooh. know if I've been like not just before co- or since COVID, like alone in my house for an extended period of time by myself. But I don't know when the last time this actually happened. So this is like fun. you mean like alone, alone as in like yeah. husband and child are gone too, right? Yes, husband and child are on their very first road trip together without me. And everyone that's exciting. Gonna, it is. And people are like, you're going to cry. And I'm like, I don't think you understand. I get to have a bath by myself now. Like, this is glorious. Anyway, totally. Yeah. So, what cool. are we talking about today? I was thinking we could dig into the throne speech a little bit. Sounds good to me. So my biggest thing when I was listening to this and they were like, no more curb. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's back up. Let's tell mm-hmm. people that don't know what the heck a throne speech is. It's like when the government says, this is my vision. And then we wait a little bit longer for them to actually put through the bills and policies to make the vision happen. But they're like, it's like a mission statement, I guess. How would you describe it? Yeah, I would say I agree with that. So basically last week they came out with kind of how they were going to address a lot of the things from a financial perspective um, that I guess people have been probably asking about for the last um, maybe six months, I guess, since the pandemic started. And it's not obviously pandemic specific, but a lot of it, I think, is addressing what's going on there. Yeah, I feel like that was the full, the full throne speech was all pandemic all the time, I think, this time around. Didn't hear much about like budgets or balancing them or all the usual things that we have. Such as 2020 though, right? Yeah, like this is it. It's all pandemic. Um, But yeah, how did you feel about it when you were listening or when you read it afterwards? Well, so they had announced that obviously CERB or CURB or CERB or however you want to say it was ending like about a month ago. And they had announced that it would be a transition to a new EI program. And then there would be three additional benefits. So I feel like that was probably one of the biggest um, questions people have is like, how does that look? What does that look like? Who even qualifies for that? And to be honest, I guess I haven't seen a ton of information that we didn't already have around that specific piece of it. Yeah, because it still needs to be like it's a bill, right? So it still needs to be passed. We still need a budget. We still need all those kind of things, right? So this is just kind of a like, here's our game plan at a high level, I feel. But I don't, 
I don't love the ending of the Serb or the Curb or I'm going to go with the hard C because it's Canada and that's how we say it. We don't say Sanada. So anyway, um, you do yeah. you because I'm going to say Serb. So <laughs> go for it. Go for it. That's how everyone else does it. <laughs> I do like though that the, the, there's those three additional benefits. So I think one is like a sick leave of up to two weeks for people who don't get sick leave at their regular jobs. I think that's a good policy to have um, and a good program because I think we're all seeing, I know um, both you and actually two of my coworkers have had to have COVID tests in the past couple of weeks and keep their kids home and um, all of your collective children are under the age of eight, so they need constant attention. With the youngest, one of my coworkers has is a one-year-old. So she said she's in the middle of it right now. You know, it's three days for a to wait for a test, and then it's two days to wait for results. So it's basically like taking a full week off mm -hmm. because either her or her husband has to watch their kid, and they can't send the kid to daycare. Yeah, and I do like the the sickness benefit part of it and the caregiving benefit for folks that, yeah, either are at home sick or at home caring for kids or waiting for their test results and all that good stuff. Um, and I like that they're going to try and um, change the Canada Labor Code to ensure that it's job protected as well. That's a huge plus. I think for me, what I don't love is the um, must, the workers must be available and looking for work. That's fine, I think. But when we're dealing with something like COVID, that's like a health crisis and pandemic, obviously, um, we haven't required nationally for workplaces to like brush up their stuff. So I feel like it really limits, and I know this is provincial jurisdiction right now, but it really limits what workers can say or do in terms of refusing unsafe workplaces. So that's, I was really hoping for that. I mean, I think it was pretty obvious that I was really hoping for a, a guaranteed livable basic income um, with this. And I just don't think EI even retooled goes far enough, or at least it doesn't have enough being proposed in tandem to fully support um, people right now through this pandemic and maybe going forward. Yeah, I think it missed the mark on the pandemic piece because I I do agree that EI needed to be rejigged and re um, reestablished and different um, different requirements needed to be able to be met, but. Yeah, I don't know if willing and able to work when we're in the middle of a pandemic is the best idea. And I guess maybe what I mean by that is if you are sick or if you're, you know, just even mentally exhausted from this pandemic, I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm starting to get to my limit mentally and having to like look for work on top of that yeah i yeah i just don't think we're we're there yet at least we're not there if we're not going to ask the employers to 
step up as well and ensure that people are, are fully protected and that the employers are doing what they can to provide safe and reasonable work. It's one thing for somebody to be looking, but if safe work is not available in your city, town, province, what have you, I don't think it's reasonable to say you have to be um, looking for work and submitting, oh gosh, like I just reports. know how many, yeah, I just know how many reports people regularly have to submit on EI and how sometimes when you're dealing with massive amounts of unemployment, how it's just a make work project. Like I think we could look across um, the nation and say, listen, like unemployment is very, very high. We know that companies um, are not rehiring the same way that they normally would. And we know that some industries are completely gone at this point because of restrictions that still have to be in place for people's health. And I think we have to say like, this is not reasonable to put all of this on an individual worker if we're not going to create a system that allows that person to find safe and reasonable work. Also, we don't have a national minimum wage. So what are we doing? Like this person will be disqualified from EI if they submit the report, they're offered a job that pays less than EI because now we have a minimum EI payment of $500 a week. Um, but what if, what if your job pays less than that? Was, is that for EI or is that for the CRB? Oh, you know what? It might be for, nope. It says these changes will also establish a minimum weekly benefit rate of $500 for new EI recipients, the same level as the CRB. Oh, okay. I did not know that. That's, so, that's really good to hear actually, because the 55%, which is what it used to be of your income, if you make $12 an hour really sucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, um, I, I, for, for me, that was a real positive. Um, and I think reducing the number of hours that you need to qualify was a real positive. For Absolutely. Me too. And I think that helps to incentivize people like employers hiring on, people on full time. I know there's been some criticism saying, well, like, why would we pay a part-time worker on EI more than they would make going back to work part-time? And it's like, well, hire people back full-time, pay them a living wage. Like, I just don't understand what the problem is. Yeah. Right. So on the EI, um, it says, yeah, at least $500 per week because the, the max used to be $2,000 a month. So have they increased EI? I haven't seen any of that. So I guess this is going to be fleshed out a little bit too, but I, I, yeah, I, I have not seen that. Do we know when that is going to happen? Because I feel, I feel like, like, no. like CERB ended today, mm -hmm. today being September 28th when we're recording this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it looks like they've done a first reading and okay. they got to do that a few more times and then vote on it. And, and that's, I don't love the timing either, even with the, the CRB, which I actually don't know if they can implement um, right away. I feel as though if people don't find a way to get back to work, and as I've mentioned, I don't really think there's a way to get people back to work yet en masse. Um, if we don't get something in quickly, uh, it's, it's going to leave a lot of people starving or at risk of losing their homes. 
And I don't think that's reasonable. No, not at so all. I, I, I was pretty disappointed with that. I mean, maybe we'll find out next week that they've changed their mind and it's taking longer and they're going to increase um, the CERB or open it back up again. But I just don't know. I don't know if this is like a political tool to like make everyone agree with them, but yeah, that's why I'm not a politician. One of the other things that I thought was interesting was the emergency benefits for um, businesses. So both the, what is it? The wage subsidy and the, the business the account. Yeah, the SIBA. Mm-hmm. Um, See, so you say SIBA, not. I feel anyways. like it's just because I hear SIBA more often and I've just trained myself to say it, but that also should be a hard C because Canada. Anyway, moving on. Anyways, um, I think both of those are extended to next year. Mm-hmm. So that and- I think is good for small business and not for profits. Yeah, and I believe that SIBA um, has been expanded or there's a proposal to expand it to include more businesses. The thing is, so I hear a lot, and I guess maybe I shouldn't say I hear a lot, but I have heard discussion saying, well, if we have the um, wage subsidies, so CEWS, Q's or SUS, however you wanna say that, if we have that, why bother having um, an, a CERB? Because the government's paying somebody's salary anyway. I would have liked to see if you're gonna increase, if you're gonna extend the wage subsidy, which fine. I, I think that needs to be tightened up. Like now we've told people who were getting CERB that now they have to submit paperwork to prove that they're looking for work. Um, we've restricted it to some folks. If they don't meet the, the minimum hours, if they've already maxed out their EI because they've been unemployed for two years, um, there are still some people who are going to fall through the cracks moving from a CERB to an EI. Totally. With this, we've just extended the wage subsidy without any restrictions. So there's still no requirement for employers to pay that additional 25%. So if they're not topping it up at all, you're basically on the government's payroll. There's only a restriction in terms of um, having a reduction in revenues and it's it's 30%, it's not nothing. I thought they terms. had to pay the 25%. No, there's no, there's no um, system of governance that I've seen to, they're supposed to pay the 25%, but it's not as though they have to give the government any kind of documentation that they have. It's just an honor system, the same way the curb was, which if you're rolling it out quickly, fine. I'm cool with that. But now we have the opportunity to make it a little bit better, right? So if we're asking individual EI applicants to do a lot of work, why aren't we asking people that could be topping up the, you know, using the wage subsidy for their entire accounting department or governance department to submit these forms? We know these forms are a thing. Uh, or can be a thing, right? So I didn't love that when they extended um, the wage subsidy. The other thing is, if you're only looking at revenue, that makes sense for a small business, probably, right? We don't have these small businesses that are maintaining um, billions of dollars of assets. They're not claiming millions and billions of dollars of profit most quarters, right? 
And it's not as though they're publicly traded and giving out a, a, a dividend and they want to maintain that. But we do have companies that are using the wage subsidy that have had a reduction in revenue. But as we spoke before, revenue is not profit. And I think if we are paying as taxpayers and, and citizens of this country, if we're paying for a wage subsidy, but not ensuring that it is going to the mom and pop shops and not being misused by, let's face it, companies that can afford to pay workers right now, they're just taking a hit in one or two quarters, which again, it's not nothing. It's just maybe they should have a different program. Does that make sense? Because I feel like we're just paying wages and we're eliminating an item on uh, their financial statements and on their budgets and just increasing their ability to deliver in terms of profit. And we've seen some businesses really um, profit heavily off of this pandemic. And I, I don't know that I'm comfortable with it. No, I, I definitely agree with you there. And I think, you know, for all of those people that were kind of at the throats of the government saying we need to tighten up the fraudsters on CERB, I mean, this could have been a great opportunity to do so from the business side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you and I don't hire lobbyists, so I guess that's... That's true. Is what it is. <laughs> we can edit that out. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. I guess I, I had just pulled up an article that kind of went through some of the other throne speech items um, that I thought were interesting. The other one I really wanted to mention slash ask you about was um, the provision for home buyers. So the government is planning to enhance the first time home buyer incentive um, again is what I was reading. And I'm like, hmm. I don't know if that's a good idea. I know mortgage rates are low, but yeah. Again, I don't love that. Like at a certain point, are some of these just to maintain the you know, current price of real estate in this country? Are we just trying to prevent any kind of collapse or downturn? Because that doesn't actually help with affordable housing. It doesn't. It doesn't help low-income people. It doesn't help people who are out of work and trying to get a house. It's not really subsidized housing. It's not low-income housing. So who are you helping? Maybe a couple of people in the middle class who are going, middle class, I use in air quotes, but people like you and me, when we bought our first homes, it may have been something we could take advantage of, but really it's, it's just to maintain that floor price. Yeah. Right? Like it should be, shouldn't we be helping people that can't save up 30, 50, 60, $100,000 as a down payment instead of just giving some people who should be going into the market, who do qualify for a mortgage and helping them drag down the prices again to something that makes sense? <sighs> I don't love it. Yeah, I wasn't super thrilled with seeing that in there. I feel like we need to stop encouraging people to buy houses they can't afford. But exactly. that's my two cents. Exactly. And we could we could have a program that made housing more affordable or provided housing for folks that like let's be real, may never be able to to buy a home in Canada. Yeah. 
with prices as they are, right? So, yeah. Unless they move to like a rural area. Even if you move to a rural area, like unless we get work from home full time and get proper internet, which was actually uh, something in the throne speech to do a universal broadband fund, which is great. But well, then we're going to all go out there and drive up the prices there as well. And yeah, it just doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense in terms of like an incentive. I don't really know what that does except buy some more votes. Yeah. That's probably, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sounds like you're helping, but you're not helping. Um, was there anything else that stood out to you? Not specifically. What about you? I like, there was something about actually looking into a gender-based violence strategy. Um, oh. They mentioned, yeah, and they mentioned missing and murdered Indigenous women um, again. I will maybe not hold my breath on that one. We'll see. Again, it's not fleshed out. Maybe it's just something to pick up some votes. Um, but they did have a couple of things in there that we know would help women, like universal pharmacare. They did mention something about ensuring that people in rural areas um, have access to health care. Not sure if that means they're going to revisit the, the Health Care Act. It would be nice if they revisited the Education Act as well. The Universal Pharmacare, if they actually want to get that shit done, they're going to have to, you know, maybe manage it themselves instead of leaving it up to the province to ensure that it is universal. Um, but then there was a mention about virtual health care, which, again, I don't love. Like, I don't think that we should have these rural communities, which we know have, you know, not always the greatest in terms of internet access to kind of like try to save them with technology when really we should just say, hey, everyone gets a doctor. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So there was that. There was some touch, uh, some mention of disability benefits, um, re-looking at eligibility, which I hope means loosening it rather than making people with disabilities like continually have to fill out paperwork um, on paperwork. And then this is what got me a little bit. At the very end, they mentioned climate change. And okay. so then I looked it up. They haven't been enforcing like the current uh, act and the current environmental protections. And there are several provinces that have rolled back apparently due to COVID, even though most of these provinces are basically open at this point. Um, I have said that we cannot possibly do any environmental monitoring at this point because of COVID and the federal government has basically turned a blind eye to it and said that this is cool. So I don't know why they put that in there without actually just saying, hey, monitor stuff so that we don't have another huge oil spill in, um, it's not a bunkhouse or it, it's, it's like the monitoring station. There was a huge oil leak in basically the monitoring station. It was ridiculous. So I don't know what the hell that was about. Are we we'll talking see. about Alberta? Uh, I think that actually happened on the BC side of the border, but basically Alberta. I'm going to blame it on Alberta because we are the friggin' worst. Yeah, okay. I can agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did, I did see a note in the, the provision for homeowners. Um, it, you just jogged my memory. Um, when we were talking about internet is there was a comment on providing access to high speed internet. So I feel like 
that would be a really, really great thing if we could see that Canada wide. But as you know, we talked in our um, episode about how expensive it is in, to live in Canada's north. I feel like for a lot of communities that aren't like metropolitan cities, that might be a challenging ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be a huge ask. And there was something in the the climate change bit too, about like retrofitting homes and electric vehicles. And it's like, guys, we need to take a real look at what's going on in the boundaries of Canada, because some people don't have fucking roads, man. Like, how are you going to ask people to do electric vehicles when some places literally do not have roads year round? Are we talking about the same thing? Um, So I feel like there's a lot of very nice promises or very nice aspirational things here, but not, and I mean, it's a throne speech. I'm not expecting a lot of meat and policy and that kind of thing. But at the same time, like, are you looking at the same fucking country? Yeah. I don't know if you are. Universal broadband though, I think it would, it would create jobs. It would create real jobs. If we wanted to, you know, tell the metropolitan areas, like, you have to put in, you know, some green building standards and that kind of thing. Well, at the same time, like building roads and bringing water to, to other jurisdictions without maybe concerning ourselves as much about what cars they drive when we haven't provided them with the basic everyday, like, yeah, basic everyday necessities. Um, Yeah. I do worry about this, um, some of these things that it's gonna end up in a lot of shaming of poorer areas of Canada. I I mean, they're not poor because they did something wrong. They're poor because we just have decided to ignore them for a really long time. And I feel like we're gonna have bigger cities like Vancouver and um, Toronto and Montreal moving to electric vehicles And then we're going to have a bunch of people still running on diesel because they're cheap and they're all that people have access to. And I don't think that we should be shaming people for individual choices when we haven't provided the national infrastructure. It's not a choice, right? Like we say it's a choice, but it's not really a choice. Exactly. It's a false choice. And I, yeah, there are a few things with the virtual healthcare, the pharmacare, the gender-based violence stuff. Um, the broadband and the climate change that I, I think it's going to be a false choice. Was there anything on, um, I didn't see anything, but on child care being universal across? There was mention of it after. Yeah. Like, sorry. And maybe I kind of misspoke. Like, obviously I know that it was mentioned, but I meant like actual substance. No, no. The same way like pharmacare was, we're going to make this universal and, but I have a feeling it's going to be a transfer to the province for them to manage. And as we can see, some provinces do provide care and a lot. Quebec. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, the sad part is Quebec operates so, um, I don't know. It's, I guess it's, it's different from the rest of the provinces and territories. Alberta. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, I mean, I mean, yeah. And we can talk about Alberta. Kenny's already said he's going to stop pharmacare at the door. I don't know why. I don't know why, man. Like, why don't you want people to have insulin? I guess so they can be forced to go work in a mine 
so that their employer did he is... say anything as to why no he didn't give any reason other than he just doesn't like government which doesn't make sense because he likes government as long as they're funding the industries that are like his pet industries right and i just don't think you should force people to work for insulin i don't know yeah. am i crazy does that make sense to some people yeah, I feel like it, you shouldn't have to hold a job to live. Right? Like, yeah. like, like stay a lot. This is literally like life and death, right? Yeah. And I mean, if you, if you look at it too, like people need to have things like insulin, heart medication, food, transportation. They need to have all of these things in place before they can go out and work. How are you going to go to a job on your first day even if it does have healthcare benefits, if you don't have insulin and you yeah. need it. That makes it really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, there's nothing in any of these, um, in the, dis- the mention of the, the disability program changes, the mention of the EI changes, there's no mention of clawback again. And I don't think that you can claw back people's benefits dollar for dollar or 50 cents on the dollar or anything like that and expect them to go to work at a job that doesn't provide them health care or safety or anything like that. So what do you think about the, the German system where they basically, it's like kind of privatized, but not really in the sense that they make employers cover that stuff. But again, that I, and I don't know enough about the German system, um, just at a high level that kind of, again, negates the people who aren't working. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it should be tied to employment. I mean, if you did have some sort of mix of system where if you're unemployed, you go to the government pharmacare system. And then if you are employed, your employer is forced to do that. And there's like this middle ground of small businesses um, that use like the government funded program. But I don't know. I don't have the perfect system, but I feel like the people we pay to design the perfect system could be better at it. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Anything else that you wanted to dive into in the throne speech? Well, I guess I'm going to get back to this friggin' wage subsidy thing again. So another part of the benefits to employers was that they didn't have to pay into things like EI. And I just don't understand why we're giving employers such large- Sorry, they were, if they were on the wage subsidy, they did not have to pay into EI, is that correct? Correct, it, that's my understanding, correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that seems weird because we would still, like as workers, we would still pay our portion of that. We don't get any kind of- um, I mean, at least I haven't seen it. I haven't seen any reduction for us in our income taxes or any changes to the progressive tax rates that we have. And yet it seems like we're giving a lot to large companies or at least giving large companies access to things um, and the ability to kind of duck out on their paying for it. Yeah, that doesn't seem right. Like you're making the individuals pay but then the businesses get a pass. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's like, if it were just a mom and pop 
And like, you've got somebody who employs like two to five employees and like, this is really make or break it. That's one thing. But when you let it be accessed by the bigger businesses, honestly, I think giving them that much of an advantage in this particular market at this particular time will lead to monopolies, will lead to limiting the mom and pops, will actually limit competition. Isn't like Air Canada using it? Uh, Air Canada is not, but WestJet is. Okay. Yeah. One of them was. So, and they yeah, still like, did layoffs. Yeah. Like they're big enough. Like they're backed by so much money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the thing if it comes down to choices, and it's going to, right? And for me, if it comes down to choices and how we spend this collective pot of tax dollars, I would much rather see it go to food and shelter for individual citizens than to bailouts for airlines. Because let's be honest here, if the planes are shut down for six months and the company folds and people get their packages and everything like that, we can, we can rebuild a company. People do it all the time, you know, but we can't give someone their life back. And this is, this is a choice that I just don't understand why it's not basic. Yeah. Well, because the, like, when you think about it, like people are going to make the argument, well, if we you know don't give the companies um, advantages, then they're going to shut down. But it's like, we're seeing companies shut down anyways. So we may as well provide it on the, the individual side of thing. Cause we know those are going to exist, right? People are going to exist. Companies may or may not exist. Exactly. And if you look to like the airline industry, if there is just no longer a need or a demand for flights at this time, at a certain point, I think the most responsible thing we can do is remove government subsidies. And as much as it sucks, let them fail because it's not necessary right now but it is necessary to feed the people who used to work there. And then when we're over this, when we have a vaccine, when things start up again, we'll have a new entrepreneur or maybe even the executives of that very same company come back and start another airline. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough for sure to know which way to do it, but... I feel like if we try and keep our, our moral compass about us and, and think about the people at the end of the day that are affected, um, then I think that's the right thing to do. I think so too. That's, that's where I'm at. So where are they at with the voting of all of these items that they mentioned? Oh God, like nowhere. Right. So it looks like they're, they've been put into bills. Um, a bunch of them will go into the budget, which is usually fall time. But I mean, this could be a month or two. And I don't, I don't think that's fair either. Well, they've got to do something a little bit faster for some areas of this, right? If like they don't serve and well, if they don't, release another emergency benefit then that's it yikes i mean like 
Serb was kind of a, a hard fight to begin with too, right? There was already backlash for that. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's gonna be as many people that are negatively affected if they had done nothing. But if there is a gap in benefits, that's going to be incredibly disruptive. I mean, I just keep thinking about when they only paid, like of all the changes they've made to AISH within Alberta, um, when they just changed the payment date, the impact to those in individuals who needed their AISH payment to pay their rent, to buy themselves food. I, I mean, that was huge. And uh, yeah, I just, unethical. So, yeah. There's I mean, that. my hope is they can get this, some of this stuff through. I mean, some of it's not as important or as, or not important, but not as time sensitive maybe as things like the new EI program and stuff like that. So I guess my hope is those get through sooner rather than later. Yeah. I mean, at the same time though, like they are important, you know, universal pharmacare for somebody who has been without um, pharmaceuticals or pharmaceutical coverage for the past six months because they've lost their employment and, um, you know, their CERB barely covers their rent and food. And so now they're making the choice, which there were everyday Canadians doing this anyway, but now they're making the choice between food and um, medication. I don't think it's fair to ask them to wait any longer for folks that, you know, have been waiting for things like the some kind of action to come out of the missing and murdered Indigenous women study, and now this gender-based violence strategy coming out. Um, you know, there are a lot of women whose lives could be saved by doing this a little bit more quickly. No, I agree. And, and maybe I, I misspoke in what I said about, like, I guess I struggle with, like, the prioritization of things because I, I understand that some people have been waiting and it's like, how do you weight all of these things equally and equitably? And does it like, what's the discussion around equal versus equitable? And I agree, you shouldn't have to wait six months for medication at the same time, um, rolling something out where those people could get, you know, just cash in their bank account. Is that a better option in the short term? I just, I don't necessarily know the answer. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, like, it's, that's their job. But at the same time, like, we already had the CERB. At the very minimum, if they had said, we're going to extend the CERB until we get um, this bill voted in, or the budget comes through, or what have you, rather than leave individuals at limbo, I think I would be a little bit more happy. I mean, I would just would have been happier if they would have gone a little bit further too, because we know this is going to get scaled back as soon as they start debating on it. Right. So. Yeah, no, that that's fair. I think probably, yeah, it should have been extended if they didn't, if they weren't ready to go.
we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Pink Tax Podcast is recorded in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Our music is provided by Margot. You can find her work at noisebymargot.com. Sound editing by Peter Dobson. If you'd like to support the Pink Tax Podcast, you can make a donation at liberapay.com slash pinktaxpodcast and submit a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.